Hey, Tim here. Before we start this episode, I'm hoping you could help me out with a really quick favor. As I hope you know, because I try to mention on every podcast, I really, really appreciate you listening. And I want to invest more into the Future of Agriculture podcast and make it more valuable to you. But I can't do that unless I know what you like and what you don't like about the show. And uh, in order to try to find that out, I've created a very, very brief survey. It's only 10 questions, most or multiple choice. You will go through it very, very quickly. Uh, But if you could, please just hit pause on this episode right now and go to futureofag.com, futureofag.com. Front and center, you're going to see something that says feedback and click here for a brief survey. If you wouldn't mind, please fill that out at your earliest convenience. In fact, right now, would be a great time so that I can make sure that as we go forward, I'm making this show better for you. Really appreciate that. That's futureofag.com. Click to take the survey. If you have any questions, you can email me, but that would really, really help out as we plan content and approach here for 2020. Thanks so much and enjoy this episode. This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, hope you're wearing your boots and your jeans for this episode of the podcast. We're going to go on a farm tour. One huge advantage to moving up here to the Boise, Idaho area is I am in the Treasure Valley, which is one of the most agriculturally rich and diverse and unique areas of the country. And I would be doing you a disservice as a listener to this podcast if I didn't take you out to experience it firsthand. So this will be a unique episode because it was recorded entirely in the cab of a pickup truck. That pickup truck belongs to farmer and owner of Owyhee Produce, Shay Myers. Now, if you are not following Shay Myers on LinkedIn, you need to do so right now. He puts out fantastic content related to his life as a fresh produce farmer here right on the Idaho-Oregon border. Uh, They're quite diversified. We're going to go to fields of onions, sweet potatoes, hemp, mint, and asparagus just in this episode alone. And uh, Shay gets a chance to talk to us a little bit about about each one of them. But before we start our farm tour here today, we do have a sponsor for this episode. would like to thank Indigo Ag for sponsoring the Future of Agriculture podcast. Every flood begins with a raindrop. Every drought was once a sunny day. Every plague of insects grew from a couple of eggs and every hurricane from a breeze. Our biggest problems start small. But what if the biggest solutions do too? At Indigo, we're using the natural microbes found on plants that survive droughts to help other plants survive them too. Visit indigoag.com grow to learn more. Indigo, from questions we grow. If you want to learn more about agriculture, I cannot think of a better way than to just hop in a farmer's truck and ask them questions as you travel along from field to field. This was extremely enlightening. We touch on everything from family operations to labor to technology to markets 
to how the farmer is perceived by the people they do business with. Really, really enlightening interview, and and I hope you get a a lot of value out of this. Uh, Shea originally thought he wanted to be an airline pilot, but shortly after 9-11, there weren't a lot of good opportunities. Eventually, he decided that he could still pursue his passion for flying by returning to the family farming operation. At that time, he joined his grandfather, his uncle, and his mom, uh, which was uh, in 2006, an 1,800-acre operation. Now it's close to a 4,000-acre operation, and in addition to Shea joining, other family members uh, and employees have joined as well. They uh, have a really diverse and interesting business. I think you're going to love this. Shea's going to start off by talking about how his grandfather and his uncle responded to his desire to come back and join the operation. They were actually really excited about the idea of me coming back. They knew that there were opportunities. And the first thing that they had me do almost immediately upon my return was to put together an onion packing operation. We had been onion growers for three or four decades prior to my return, but we weren't packing or marketing our own onions. And so that was the first thing they did. And they threw me to the wolves and we made lots of mistakes, massive, significant mistakes. But they understood that that would happen and they let me make those mistakes as costly as they were and, and as bad as they, they were, you know, at that point in time for me to be making because they, either they were going to make the mistakes or I was going to make the mistakes. Certainly I would think mine were worse than theirs would have been just because I was so naive and young and entering the business world. But that's really what they allowed me to do and, and the contribution that I was able to make. And since that point, we've tried to vertically integrate as much as we can in as many areas as we can. We were already vertically integrated and, and I don't know if your audience will understand when, when I see vertically integrated, sometimes that's really easily understood and sometimes it's not. But I, I think it would be helpful if you could explain it because we, we actually haven't had a whole lot of like fresh pr- produce growers on here. And I think it's maybe a little bit unique in fresh produce than it might be elsewhere. Okay. Vertical, vertical integration in our business really is following the, the process one step further. So you can be just a farmer and you can grow onions. I'll just keep using onions as the example. You can be a, just a farmer and grow onions, or you can be a farmer that grows onions and packs your own onions, which means you bring them in, you store them, you sort for quality and grade and put them in a bag, and then you sell them. And that's really one more step. Step one is growing them. Step two is packing them. Step three is selling them. A lot of the times people will hire a third party, whether it's a broker or a marketing firm to do the marketing side. So that's the third step in the process. And then maybe step four would be processing. You have a byproduct that comes from your, your line. In our case, we have, you know, onions that aesthetically aren't pleasing enough or have a little bit of decay that we can get out and still utilize in the, in the processing. And that's kind of the fourth step. So we do all four of those steps. So we try and capture that income and that part of the value chain from farming to packing to marketing and selling and even to processing. Okay. And just curious, because we just passed it, actually, that one's similar, that we're passing by fields that, that show a bunch of onions on the field. Are those drying out before they're collected, or what are the, what's going on there? Yeah, so the process for onions, we'll do what we call lifting. So we'll, we'll bring a, some will know it as a, a rod weeder, but a, a spinning bar that goes right below the root base, and that will separate the onions' roots from the soil, breaks up the soil, and that lets those onions die naturally, and then they will cure down. And we can come back two to three weeks later, depending on what the weather does, and have an onion that's ready to be put in storage. So we're not taking all that extra mass, the weight, the wetness, and and whatnot into the storage building. Hmm. 
And going back to something you said earlier about kind of coming in and making huge mistakes and your, your grandfather and your uncle kind of allowing you to, can you give us an example of, of maybe one of those mistakes and just kind of to show the difference between what you didn't know going into it to now? Yeah, prove, prove how bad I was doing at my job when I started. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, can, I can do that. I can do that. There's funny witnesses to, to what those screw-ups were. Those screw, screw were. The, really, the first thing was you're trying to sell a crop. So we weren't just packing. We were trying to pack and sell. And we had a, an agreement early on with multiple either brokerage companies or marketing companies that were going to sell for us. And they turned around and said, oh, never mind. We're not going to sell for you. Hmm. So we had this packing facility. We had the onions and we didn't really have any way to sell. So we were very desperate for customers. And so in, with that desperation comes a willingness to sell probably to customers that you shouldn't sell to. Either customers that kick your load because they say the quality isn't good enough when that's really not the case. Hmm. Or people who pay extremely slow. Or in our case where I really feel like I made the biggest mistake is selling to people that never paid you. So, you know, we lost better than $300,000 our very first year. And people that simply saw us as an easy target wow. took the produce from us and then just never paid us. Oh. And I've since, you know, and, and, and then I talked about people that are difficult to sell to. Even since then, I've completely stopped selling to, well, we can, we can choose we can choose. It took a long time for me to realize that I could choose who our customers were and who we were would be willing to work with. And obviously, as you get a larger customer base, you have a better presence, you have a good reputation, then those customers come to you and you can pick and choose a lot more. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it took, I bet, a decade almost before we were in a position where I really felt like we could do that. And it, and it feels really good. That might sound a little cocky me, but it feels really nice to have someone call you that wants to buy from you and you're like, nah, you know, I really don't want to do business with you. Right. Yeah. Okay. That it's more than just price. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I saw a video you'd done last couple months about, you know, kind of brokers and, and it's so easy for them to sort of set up a, set up a desk and make promises and then only fulfill the ones that benefit them. Exactly. And it seems like that, it, it, it seems like there's still a lot of that going on in the, in the produce industry. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And brokers aren't all bad. It's just the brokers that don't follow through, right? I, I, had, I had a lot of conversations based on that video and people that were like, hey, what, what are you saying? Like, you know, they, they, they thought I was too critical. And I'm like, look, if, if you're the broker that's doing the job, actually, you know, the brokers that I work with, we're not offended by that because they know that they're doing what they say they're going to do. Mm -hmm. It's the ones that are, are, are I, I, would, I would call them predatory to some extent, but they come in and they just, they don't care what the return is. And you probably know, this isn't an onion field. It's a sweet potato field, but mm -hmm. that's where I was going to start because they're just starting harvest to let you kind of see this. This is unique for the Treasure Valley. This is the only sweet potatoes grown in the Northwest, period. We started growing sweet potatoes. This is our fourth season. Everyone told us we couldn't do it. Why? We don't have enough heat units. We're too far. We're too far north. We'll never figure it out. And we have a beautiful crop. It's taken, I mean, we've it's certainly there, you know, talking about mistakes. Now, this is my cousin, Chase, who's in charge of this. And certainly, so I'm going to let him, he's made the mistakes on this, but he's been allowed to make those mistakes and he's figured it out. And, you know, you've got, you know, we've got almost 400 acres of sweet potatoes in the ground this year and, and they're going all over the place. And it's been a fun, very challenging thing to watch happen, Be, especially with Chase watching. He's a, let's say, a six years younger than I am hmm. watching him go through the same process that I did. Like where he just, you make mistake upon mistake upon mistake. But this year he, he nailed it. This is just, it's a beautiful crop. The yield's going to be nice. The timing was good. You know, the, there's not very many weeds. The planting process was good. I mean, we're just starting to figure it out. And that's, mm -hmm. what's, that's what's awesome about agriculture. When you start to figure something out, if you're willing to, you know, take that leap and not 
follow or do something that's already established, you really get to see some amazing results. And it, it makes you feel really good about what you're doing. Yeah. What what convinced you, you know, like I, they would have said the same thing about if you wanted to put in an avocado orchard, like, hey, it'll never work up here. You know, what, what was sweet potatoes convinced you that it was worth trying? Sure. So we did have the experiment station in the OSU experiment, experiment, experiment station, which is located in Ontario, mm-hmm. had done some trials. And one of the lead scientists over there kept saying, well, you can do this. It can be done. It can be done. But no one was really like doing it at you know, a test level versus commercial level is dramatically different. But he came, you know, and he he kept talking about it and thinking that it could be done. And then we had a customer come to us. Walmart actually was trying to get local sweet potatoes. And they're like, hey, if you can do this, you know, because I think people that deserve kudos for doing something right and doing what they say should should get that. That's why I'm mentioning the name specifically. They're like, if you can do this, we'll buy them from you. And so it, we would have never been able to enter this market in the first place had we not had someone like them come along and say, look, if you do it, we'll buy it. Hmm. And so it was kind of a perfect storm. We had the that introduction and that ask, hey, can you grow these? And then we had the research, the basics, you know, the basis of the research to say, yeah, we can do it. And that's why we ended up growing sweet potatoes. So a stupid question on sweet potatoes. I see the difference in the store, but I don't really know. What's the difference between a sweet potato and a yam? That's a really good question. In the United States, we don't grow any yams, number one. Yams were marketed in the southern United States in the late 1800s as a name for sweet potatoes. So a sweet uh, a yam is actually a root. The, the what you're eating is the entire root. Like imagine a carrot. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what you're eating when you eat a yam. When you eat a sweet potato, you're eating something that is the, the what happens with the sweet potatoes. You end up with a root that swells, but it's more like a potato. It's not exactly a tuber, but it's more like you know you might imagine with a potato. Yeah, and and that is the difference. So. You'll you'll see them labeled sweet potatoes labeled as yams all the time. That's getting changed. That's less and less and less. Okay, but the confusion's still out there because you and I grew up seeing sweet potatoes called yams, right? Mm-hmm. That's the difference. One's a root, and one is you know a true a, a true multiple plant, multiple unit plant. I don't know how to describe that, but I mean that what happens with the sweet potatoes is that the roots go down and they spread out, and then those roots begin to swell. And in the case of a of a of a yam, it's just just the single root that grows. That swollen root. Yep. Huh. And, and I'm interested by that relationship between you, you all and, and a company like Walmart. You know, how did they how did they know to bring that? Did Do you guys just talk on a regular basis and say, hey, I'm thinking about sweet potatoes. What do you think? And bounce ideas off each other. And if so, you know, how do you do that with all of the people you sell to? That would, it would seem like a really time-consuming process. So we do a lot of customer visits as part of our sales program. But what happened is they were just, they were doing an onion visit. It was a uh, fall man, what year was that? Well, it's 19. So it must've been fall of 15 because it probably took us a year to get it together. Fall or 15 or 16 and that they were visiting onions. And we just said, hey, what else could you possibly need? Is there something else that you're not getting that you would like? And they said, yeah, sweet potatoes. Mm-hmm. That's one we've been talking about. One thing we would like to have. And we called around and we had already seen some of the research from the extension and that's how it happened. I love sweet potatoes. <laughs> um very cool. And, and so, is this is this your hemp over here? This is our hemp here. Yeah, yep. that looks fantastic. We, yeah, that's tell that's us about the hemp. Ooh, there's lots to there. There, if you're talking about your uh, expensive tuition or failures, there's plenty going on in the hemp industry, and we've been on that bandwagon. We've had a lot to learn, a lot. We did multiple iterations, different types of varieties and plantings. This year, we did some direct seeded. Our hope was to do direct seeded from a cost standpoint and from a scalability standpoint. We're like, okay, we're going to go in and direct seed. 
that was not a complete failure, but it was, it's not good. I mean, if you, it's hard to see on this field here to our left, but if I drive down, you'll see tons of blinks. Lots of, I mean, we're talking 18, 20, 25 feet with, Just never with no plant. It had never germ. The quality of the seed out there is horrific. Hmm. I mean, they just doesn't have any vigor. There's no good quality behind it. You you can't confide in the ability of, you know, direct seeding like like we hoped we could and like we planned on and like we were promised. And I think that's probably the biggest thing we learned this year is it it's a brand new industry. There's a lot of riffraff still involved in it. A lot of people you can't trust. Lots. And it's not like normal agriculture. Normal agriculture, if somebody tells you they're going to do something, nine and a half times out of ten, or if not even better than that, they're going to do it. Yeah. And it's on a handshake. You just, you, it's just how the industry works. They stake their career on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is totally different. You got brand new people coming in, people that haven't been involved in the industry. You can make a quick buck. So they just have a lot less commitment to it. And that's probably been the most challenging thing is dealing with the companies and the people and the industry itself. Hmm. It's been exciting. It's been fun. And we have learned lots as well. It's going to be really interesting to see what about the next two or three years bring because there's already, to say an oversupply is a bit of an exaggeration, but for this season, based on what processing capacity is out there, it's oversupplied. And how much is really going to be consumed? And then you look at the vaping concerns as a whole, a lot of this. So everything we're growing is for CBD oil. There is some hemp that's being used as smokable. So this is a direct seeded field. So I mean, not a direct seeded, that's a transplant field. So okay. you can see how much fuller it is. It is, yeah. Yeah, so this is all going for CBD. And then there's a little bit being used for smokable hemp in the area. I mean, we're not doing any of that. But how much CBD is going to be utilized and what's it going to go into? It's going into lotions and potions and, mm -hmm. you know, different consumables. Now, I know you've made mint oil for quite some time. Is making CBD oil the same process or do you have to sell your hemp to get processed elsewhere? At this point, we have to send it to a third party. Obviously, following our model of vertical integration, at some point, it'd be nice to be doing that on our own. But at this point, yeah, it's going out and it's going elsewhere. The process is completely different. Mint is distilled using steam and the cannabinoids break down with heat. So they have to use a cold process. Oh. It's either a cold or a cold and chemical process to do it. Otherwise, they are not able to extract it. So we can get terpenes using our mint distillery, but we cannot get the CBD oil itself. And the, the, the mint oil, that goes into like toothpaste and stuff like that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we've got, you know, Colgate is, buys from us. Obviously, the, the, it's, the mint industry is very old. It's not as vertically integrated. Like we don't handle our own sales. We, we do the growing and the processing. And then it goes to a third party that specializes in essential oil sales. Hmm. And then they, they make that sale. So, but yeah, Colgate is one of those that's, if you're getting regular mint, Colgate mint toothpaste, there's a really good chance that you've tasted the mint grown on our farm. Hmm. And and so with we, we just talked about hemp and sweet potatoes. Are you just always thinking about what's next as far as bringing in new crops or, you know, or is there just kind of a unique story to each one of those about, about why? It probably goes back to my grandfather. He was, and, and my uncle Craig is very progressive as well. So let, let me lay out the, the, the farms, the members of the farm, right? Mm -hmm. So because so, I think it's, I don't want to take more credit than, than I should here. My grandfather, who just passed away this summer, was involved every day in the farm until, until his last day. He always looked to be as progressive as he could in what we grow and the diversity of our crop. And he taught that to my Uncle Craig as well. And my Uncle Craig is a phenomenal farmer that learns very quickly. He's got a photographic memory. And he just, you know, you're like, hey, where's, where's that tractor? You know, 
with whatever, you know, designation number 22. And he, he just like, he can look that list up in his head. He knows where it's at. He's just hmm. a really, really intelligent guy. And so if he gets something thrown at him, an opportunity, he likes the challenge. Like there's a lot of these things that we've done over the years that doesn't necessarily pay any better than doing a traditional crop to speak of at the end of the day. But it's the challenge, I think, for him of trying something new and making it work and proving that it can happen. Drip irrigation for onions is a really good example. He was one of the first. So today, 98% of all onions grown in this valley are drip irrigated. But that's only occurred probably in the last, that total saturation has probably happened in the last five years. We were drip irrigating when I was in high school 20 years ago. Oh, wow. I mean, he was on the cutting edge of that technology. And he just enjoys figuring that kind of stuff out. So my grandfather and my uncle, my mom has been with the organization for just a little bit longer than I have. She started doing fresh pack asparagus for us. So we grow asparagus as well. Hmm. And that, that story was kind of unique. We put that in for Seneca Frozen Foods in about 1992. In 1994, the United States signed an agreement with Peru to essentially teach Peru how to grow asparagus so that they would stop growing coca for cocaine. Oh, so and to give them access, direct access and to our give market. them free direct free trade access to our markets for asparagus. Yeah. So essentially, the U.S. government taught the Peruvians how to grow phenomenal asparagus and help them put in the infrastructure to compete with us. Hmm. And so Seneca, you know, was very motivated financially and otherwise to put their all of their frozen packing facilities in South America. And so they, two years into our contract on asparagus, they said, "Hey, we're out of here." and told us that our contracts were null and void, and they were gone. And for those that don't know, asparagus are perennials, right? So it's like you're just getting going. Exactly. We were, we were just at our peak, I mean, as far as quality and yield and everything else. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, it was either – we had, in today's dollars, about $12,000 an acre to put asparagus into production. It's, a significant, it's the same as wow. putting in an orchard. I yeah. mean, it's, it's a massive capital outlay. And so we're like, well, do we just bail on this? Do we – or do we try and – Sell some on our own. Let's yeah. see what we can do. Most people, fortunately for us, bailed. They got out. And we're like, well, we're going to try and stay in. So two or three years later, we were selling to a lot of the retailers in the region because, well, we, we, we guessed in the right way, I guess. Hmm. We kind of went, everyone else went left and we went right. And that's how it, how it worked out. And, and so is there, a, is there a season? I imagine there's got to be a season for asparagus or are you just kind of clipping those, the, the asparagus spears for a long period of time? So the asparagus season for us is springtime. So okay. we'll start late, very late March to the middle of May, uh, sorry, to the middle of April. And then we'll harvest for essentially 90 days straight. Asparagus, every single acre is picked every single day, seven days a week. Wow. If the temperature is above 88 degrees. We're growing eight inches a day in length. A oh, spear wow. will grow eight inches in a day if it's above 88. And so... It's very, very labor intensive and it takes a, a significant labor pool and it's also significantly perishable. Like it needs to be out of the field and sold within four days. When you look at food and ag- like our, supplying our own food domestically in the U.S., it's a complicated thing, right? Because in some cases we can do it cheaper. In a lot of cases, other countries can definitely do it cheaper. And we have to think about it the long term, like are we willing to have our food coming from other places? And if we are, if, you know, if we're okay with Peru and Mexico growing all of our food, then economically speaking, that's the better way to go. Like we just cannot compete on most fronts as American businesses, as American farms with these other countries. The only advantage we have is phenomenal soil, phenomenal infrastructure, 
you know, some of that and then, and then the economies of scale that we can create. Mm -hmm. But in general, we're at a disadvantage. And is that, is that labor that a lot of that savings is coming from for them? Part of it. Certainly. I mean, okay. So when you get to veg crops, like asparagus, that is the biggest single savings, right? They're, they're, they're agricultural like production costs. I mean, you have to consider the, some of the like environmental laws or regulations. Certainly we have higher costs when it comes to, to that in the United States. But aside from that, I mean, it, the seed costs the same, the chemical inputs cost the same. Mm-hmm. It comes to yeah the harvest method. So when it when you're doing asparagus, I mean we're, we've got thirty to fifty cents a pound just in getting it picked because you have to touch every spear individually. Yeah. And so we're paying, we're doing mostly H2A. So essentially our minimum wage is fourteen bucks an hour. And let's let's throw Peru. Well, I, I know the numbers out of Mexico better. In Mexico, with our competitors on asparagus in Mexico, it's eight dollars a day. So we're paying fourteen bucks an hour, essentially wow. twice the hour what they're going to earn in an entire day. Hmm. So when it's when the most significant cost of the produce item is labor, Mexico is always going to win. That's right. why so much vegetable, so much you know the wet veg, asparagus, even the tree fruit, like the avocado. I mean, avocados can be grown in California, but they would be naturally they're going to move to to Mexico because they can do it so much cheaper hmm. when it comes to labor. Now, if you look at onions, like we're you're you're going to see where everything we're doing is mechanized. Like mm-hmm. we don't touch the onions on an individual basis anywhere along the process. Hmm. And so we can still compete, but that's the only way we can compete. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, like you said, the, if you're looking at purely dollars and cents economics, it makes sense, you know, to have them grown down there. But it, it, once you start factoring in important factors, like do we want to have the capacity to grow our own food here as well as, right. you know, climate footprint, as well as social justice when it comes to pay and environmental regulations, things like that. That complicates the equation so much that I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around. Yeah, I mean, it, I, and I don't, I, I can't say that there's an easy answer. I mean, I just like people to think about the whole picture, but mm-hmm. I, I don't, should we really make the whole country pay more for their produce just so that we know that we have a supply in the off chance that there's some sort of conflict with these other countries? Hmm. I mean, and some would argue easily yes, and others are going to argue absolutely not. I mean, I, I, I don't know what the answer is, but we do need to realize that the picture is larger or the, 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 the problem is a lot larger than, you know, simple talking points. There's a lot more involved in everything. Yeah. Do you think technology will level that playing field? Technology is going to get really interesting when it comes to eliminating labor. I mean, the, what we're already doing in our packing facility with the, you know, the internal and external cameras, all of that stuff is amazing and mind-blowing about, you know, with how much labor we've been able to reduce. Ag is getting there. Like, ag, there's no question. Ten years from now, I think we're going to... The, the world we're in is going to be vastly different. There's going to be weeding robots. There's going to be robots in the field that are weeding. Mm-hmm. There's going to be picking robots that are picking fruit. And I, and I don't think, ten, I mean, 10 years is the bleeding edge. I don't think 10 years, it's the norm, but it's going to be happening. And, and it might even be sooner than that. I mean, there's certainly weeding robots that are out there that are coming on the market. There's, there's picking robots that are coming onto the market as well. But the, they're, they're going to be a really early adopter or be invested in it differently in order to say that it's, truly viable at this point. Mm. But yes, that will level the playing field. But mm-hmm. it, it takes capital to do that too. So, you know, do you invest in the the human capital or do you invest in, you know, the technology? You know, and, and one's proven and one's not. So that's where it gets hard. Switching gears a little bit, I, I know you, you put out some great stuff just kind of showing what you're doing. I see it on LinkedIn, maybe other places as well. You know, video, you share market updates. 
what prompted that to start for you and kind of what what's working in that regard? Sure. So the prompting is pretty simple. So I'm mostly on LinkedIn. We, we're pretty active on social media in general. But for me, LinkedIn has been an awesome place to go. I really like it. It's it's actually now it's starting to get saturated. For a long time there, it was just it was just in the sweet spot of truly being able to communicate with your customer base and the consumer. And in my case, the consumer isn't the end consumer. It's the buyer. It's the distributor. That's who I need to talk to because I can't, I don't have enough potency in my reach to try and sell something to the end user, mm-hmm. you know, to the people at the grocery store. I have to talk to the buyer for the grocery store. And the re- what prompted me was, it's really simple. I, w- I was in Los Angeles visiting a customer. We went to a lunch meeting and he brought one of his new sales associates and the new sales guy, we were talking through crops and he was going to be the new onion buyer. And he said, hey, Hishay, do you have a picture of the tree that the onions grow on? I've always wanted to see what that looked like. And that was really my aha moment. Like, crap, I, I've got to do something. Like, I, I can't sell to people who think that onions grow on a tree. Hmm. I can't. I mean, I can't. How can I expect to get an extra 50 cents a unit out of someone because I'm creating this value if they think they grow on a tree, if they don't even know where they come from. Mm -hmm. And that's where the process started for me. I'm like, I am going to talk about what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're different. And even if it's not, even if you think I'm like everyone else, at least you get to see in agriculture what it takes to get the food from the field to your fork. Mm. I mean, there's, there's so much involved and the, the, the scale is just massive. And you can't expect the consumer to be willing to pay you a fair price for something if they don't know what it takes, hmm. right? If your food just comes from the grocery store, what what can you expect? Yeah. So that's really how I got to where I am today as far as my presence on LinkedIn and, and Facebook and, you know, a little bit to YouTube. But it's essentially, I, I focus on LinkedIn. And it was easy because it was my content. It wasn't my company's content. It wasn't Hawaii Produce. And it wasn't our parent company, which is Froar Farms. It wasn't that. Right. It, it got to, I was able to do it as me. Yeah. And so I didn't have to rely on, you know, the marketing manager posting something in my voice or, or trying to have something posted. Like, they do a great job. Blake does mm-hmm. an awesome job. But it's not me. So being able to go out and just be, you know, this is what I'm doing today. Mm-hmm. And this is what we do on our farm just gave me a totally different perspective and way to communicate that really never existed for me before. Hmm. Yeah, I, I one thing that caught my attention was your kind of market updates. And it was interesting to me, I'm a former grain and feed ingredient trader. And so it was interesting to me to hear about kind of the price volatility in onions. You kind of think about onions as contracted and, you know, you don't think about kind of the, the regular fluctuations in price. How does that work? And in, in, uh, how do you create sort of a marketing program when you're dealing with uh, a market like that? Yeah, so for the most part, onions aren't contracted. There isn't a fixed price, especially if you're a farmer. A lot You're going to speculate a lot on that crop. And the volatility comes from a multitude of directions. I mean, what you pay at the grocery store doesn't change by much. And, and, and I'll explain why here right now. Most of the time, the markup minimum for onions in the grocery store is guaranteeing the retailer 70% profit as a minimum. And the average the average is closer to two, between two and 300%. Hmm. They have no reason to change their price. When, when there's a news story, every once in a while, I'll get a phone call when I do one of those market reports. I'm like, well, the pricing's doubled or tripled on onions. And they're like, well, what's this going to mean at the retail store? And, and I'll have to say nothing, right? I mean, you're, you're, I'm finally getting 
20 cents on the dollar of what the consumer's paying at the grocery store. So the grocery store is not going to change their price. They have no reason to. Yeah. They're still making 150%. <laughs> yeah. Like, it doesn't make any difference to them. They'll eat half of it and still make 150%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's, the, that's, that's why our industry is unique and because of, the, the, of all the margin built in at retail. Now, food service isn't the same way. Like the grocery store, I mean, I'm sorry, the, when I say food service, what I'm talking about is a restaurant mm -hmm. who is going to process or cook that product and then sell it to you on a plate. They are a lot more price conscious, but they're still in the same position and they're probably making a lot more on that onion than three, four, five hundred percent. Mm -hmm. You know, they're making much more. But onions are used as a filler. Like that's what they use to fill your plate to it's a cheap additive and it's a great flavor to add to your food. So I guess to circle back, the the market fluctuates for us specifically based on supply and demand. If we have a good crop year and there's too many onions, then likely we are not going to get good prices. But what comes into play that a lot of people don't consider, onions are the number one most exported and worldwide traded commodity. That's worldwide commodity that's fresh produce, mm -hmm. that is. Mm -hmm. So if there's a problem in India or China or Russia or anywhere in the world, last year there was a failure in, in most of the, of the European Union. So Britain and Holland, and Holland is one of the largest growing regions in the, in the world, they had problems. And so even though we had a glut of onions in the United States, their influence in the market and their need for product allowed us to have a decent, slightly profitable year when we otherwise would have been, you know, way, we would have way oversupplied the market. Hmm. And so that's, it's really hard. Like when I do a market report, I try and explain what's going on regionally and then nationally. I can't really speak to the world markets very much because there's just too much going on. Mm -hmm. But those world markets, like, you know, I could speculate and say, okay, well, this year, I think there's this many acres of onions. It looks like we should probably contract a higher percentage of our outbound product. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm never going to get 100%, but should we contract more? Well, what we've learned and what I've learned is you just cannot outguess the market. You're not going to outguess it. It's just not a possibility. You, you can have some idea of where it's going. And I mean, all I do is onions, right? Mm -hmm. I ought to be able to get a pretty decent bead on what the price is going to be three weeks or three months from now. But that's all I can have is a decent idea. Hmm. And if I'm off in one way or another, then, you know, it, it's going to be costly. How much of your production will be exported on, in a normal year? You know, most of this region is domestic only. We'll do Canada and Mexico. So uh, 10% maybe. Okay. For us, is going to go to Canada or Mexico. There's a lot of uh, the volume in Washington that will go to Taiwan and Japan and Korea and even Australia. But that, that because of their location closer to the ports, that's, most of that stuff is shipped out of the Washington growing region. So there's really two main growing regions for this time of year. You know, the, the, there's Washington, like the Tri-Cities area of Washington, and here. And mm -hmm. we supply essentially 70% of all the onions consumed in the United States October to April. Wow. Which leads me to one of my pet peeves, if you don't mind. That's that When it comes to the food safety side of our industry, we're asked to do a lot of things and the cost has just gotten higher and higher. And, and that's fine. We need to have a, a safe, clean food supply in the marketplace. But when it comes to a recall, let's say it's at retail and it's in you know your local grocery store and there's a recall on those onions. Well, there, there's, there's a multitude of problems that comes to that. That recall gets pushed back and they're like, okay, those onions were from Hawaii Produce. But number one, were they? Number one, because you can't, it's, it's hard to trace it back on a per unit basis. But let's say that they were ours. We're, we're responsible for the safety of that product, you know, like to the point where like 
we all used to bring our farm dogs, our hunting dogs with us on the farm and they'd be in the back of the pickup and you would have seen them in the field. We don't do that anymore. Those, mm-hmm. those dogs can't be with us. We can't have any of our animals with us at all. We have to segregate any of the parts of the field where a deer might walk through and that kind of thing. Yet when, in, in our society today, when folks go with their, with their pets, there's a lot of grocery stores where you can still either A, have a service animal or B, have a companion animal. And then we're also have this point where we're reusing our bags. Like, oh, well, we got to have, you know, reusable bags. We got to have that sustainability practice and not use plastic bags. Well, where was that bag Mm -hmm. and how clean is that bag? And when you reach your hand in that bag, that's dirty from some contaminant at your home and you touch my onion. Now I'm the one that's liable for that. Right. And it's a really scary place to be in this world because the liability instantaneously, if there's a recall goes back to the farm Mm. where we may or may not be responsible for that. And we're making significant investments and efforts to keep that safe. And there's the system right now is broken in that the retailer doesn't have that accountability. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of messed up. They don't they don't have to be accountable for their safety practices and what they allow their consumers to do. But we have to lay everything out and say this is everything we've done from A to Z. Right. So at some point, I think that's. I mean, hopefully, I'm not foreshadowing something that you know happens to someone that I know or something like that. But it seems like at some point that's going to come to fruition where we're going to see the results of not the farmer and or the grower having the lack of safe practices being utilized on their operation, the problem is going to be with the retailer. Right. Or the consumer that went in and contaminated something with the retailer. It's a lot like the ice cream, like the people, you know, that social media trend where people were licking the ice cream, right? Yeah. It's like that. Like, well, you know, if if that hadn't, if someone had gotten sick from that and there wasn't something on social media, who would have had the recall? Right. That would have been on them. That would have been on them. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's broken. And they've done everything right. Right. And they've done everything right. That's a broken system. It is. Hmm. Yeah, I, I see that a lot, which is uh, in a, a lot of cases, the the weight of the entire value chain gets pushed down to the farmer, whether it's cost, like, oh, we need to improve this. So farmers, you need to kind of invest in this extra right. stuff. And it just seems like at some point, at some point, that's got to change. Well, like, what did you see that? I, I don't, shouldn't name the wrong company. Anyway, a major retailer, I want to say that it was Kroger. They wanted to change the payment terms to the grower. They're like, well, we're going we're gonna to change this industry and we're going to now pay in 120 days. They wanted 120 days to pay hmm. because of what it did to their bottom line, the capital that they had available to them. And the, the frustrating part is, and, and luckily the industry pushed back immediately, mm-hmm. but it's, it's that kind of thing. We're, we're already on this onion. When you eat an onion at the grocery store, we have invested in that, the, the value of that produce at least 12 months in advance and probably more between 18 and 24 months. Like that's, that's how long it takes for the capital to cycle through the system, right? Mm-hmm. Cause we were putting compost on that field, you know, like a, a field that's going to go to onions has in two years has compost on it this year. Wow. Right. So yeah. we're already paying for that two years in advance to prepare the soil. So the idea that they were going to come in and make us wait for another, an extra 90 days to get paid was just mind blowing. Yeah. And, and that's just to your point, like it does get pushed back down to the bottom of the cycle. Like who's the one that finances everyone? We're the ones that don't get paid until everyone else is usually paid in the in, in that supply chain. Right. We're paying for the all of the inputs, all the all the seed, the land rent, the everything in advance, and we wait till the very end to get paid yeah. for all of that. Yeah, with the hope that you're gonna get paid. Right. With the yeah. hope that you're gonna get paid. Shay, thank you so much for this. No, this I has appreciate been fantastic. it. I'm, I'm glad I've been listening to the podcast for a long time. I uh, I didn't realize you were in Boise when you started. So I, not cool. when I started. I moved. Oh, you weren't. I moved. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Good. I'm, I'm one you of the closer. many people who moved up here uh, within the last couple of years. Very cool. So, very all cool. right. Thank appreciate you very much. It. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, that was a lot of fun for me. I hope it was for you as well. And I, I can't imagine you listened to that entire episode and didn't learn something about the way your food is grown. I'm all kind of geared up to do another one of these uh, farm visits or farm tours, whatever you want to call them. So if you have something in particular you would love for me to go out and experience and bring back to you on this podcast, let me know. You can find me on all the social media stuff or via email, tim at aggrad.com. Hey, thanks so much. Special shout out to those of you who have filled out the audience survey. I'm just going to try to plug that for another couple weeks here so that we can get as much feedback as possible. I'm already starting to see some insights that are going to influence how I line up the content uh, headed into 2020 here. So thanks for doing that. And thank you so much always for listening to the show. It's really, really a pleasure to bring you these stories every week. And we'll be back next week with another Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week.